Well, today we, we continue our study, actually week two of our study through uh, the book of Philippians. We're going to start in verses, well, 12, we'll go through 12 through 26. And this really begins the main body uh, of this letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he's given an introduction. But as you come to verse 12, it's really the body of what he wants to say to them. And as we look at the passage that we're going to look at today, we get a glimpse of what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life. And by gospel-centered, I mean a Jesus-centered life. I mean a, a life where we care about other people coming to know Jesus and then being rooted and established in that, that relationship with Jesus. That's what I mean by a gospel-centered life. And Paul lived that kind of life. And he shares some things here in this passage to be an example to the Philippians, but he shares these things to be an example for us as well in our day, what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life. And uh, the first thing that we see here is that, that Paul really cared about the advancement of the gospel way more than he cared about his personal circumstances. And so it was gospel above circumstances. Look at verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that. And, and this little introduction here to the body of the letter, it's, it's sort of a standard formula for a letter. It's called a disclosure formula where they're gonna, he's going to start disclosing some things. And in most cases, what was going to be disclosed was personal information. People would, like, and we do that, right? How, when we write a letter, hey, well, I'm doing well, or this is what's going on. You would ex that's what the Philippians would have expected. They knew he was in prison. They would have expected maybe for Paul to give a report if he's well. Has he got enough food? Is he cold? Is, you know, those kinds of things. Paul doesn't do any of that because it's not his concern, the advancement of the gospel is his concern. And so he goes on now that he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. His circumstances aren't great. I mean, he is in a Roman prison. I mean, he's facing a possible trial and a possible execution. Not a great circumstance to be in. And, uh, you know, the Philippians were aware that uh, with Paul being in prison, not out proclaiming Christ, that uh, they could have had a sense that Paul in prison, that is seriously hindering the spread of the gospel. And they were in, as we saw last week, they were in partnership with him for the spread of the gospel. He commended them for that. And so surely they, they had concerns about what this has meant for the advancement of the gospel. But Paul says his bad circumstances actually had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Verse 13, he says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard was a kind of an elite group of Roman soldiers. There was about 9,000 of them that served as a bodyguard to Caesar. They had come to know Paul was a prisoner who was in chains for Christ, and, and the gospel had become known among them. And you can imagine how this would happen, right? I mean, you got the, the, what happened when Paul was in prison the first time in Philippians, in Acts 16, where he was singing and praising God while he was in chains. That's kind of what Paul the prisoner did. But you could see the, the guard come in and ask Paul, so why are you here? What are you in for? And Paul taking that opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel, the gospel that Jesus is king, Caesar is not king. And so the gospel had spread among that group of soldiers, but he says his imprisonment had become well known to everyone else. 
So there were others in and around where Paul lived. Uh, we're not sure exactly where he was in prison, but there were others around there that were hearing that he was a prisoner in chains for Christ and the gospel was advancing in the Roman world through his circumstances. It wasn't hindering, it was extending, it was advancing the gospel. And Paul says here there's a second way that the gospel had advanced, and that was the effect that his imprisonment was having on other believers. And so look at verse 14. He says, And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Most, not all, but most, very many of them, were speaking with greater boldness. They were trusting in the Lord because of Paul's imprisonment. And so they heard reports of Paul's boldness while he was in prison, and they had far more courage to speak for Christ. And that, the idea of courage there is, is, is courage to speak in a situation that would be fearful, in a dangerous situation. They had courage to speak up for Christ. And so Paul's imprisonment led to a bolder witness as other believers heard about his experience. And so that's good news. But Paul says there's also some, some bad news in that there were some that were sharing Christ uh, out of less than worthy motives, verse 15. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And so, some preached Christ because they loved Paul. They knew he had been called to, uh, to be an apostle to, to, for the defense of the gospel. And they joined in with him in that. They had good motives out of love. But there was another group that had very different motives. Um, they are, he says, seeking to cause him distress in his imprisonment. And so they, they were preaching Christ from envy and strife. And he says, from selfish ambition. And in the next chapter, he's going to say, we should do nothing from selfish ambition. But these were. They were seeking to hurt Paul in some way. You know, if you're like me, like, who are these people? Like, why would they want to do that? I, I want to know answers to those kind of questions. Paul doesn't give us, Paul doesn't give the Philippians any of that kind of information because it doesn't, again, matter to him. What matters is the advancement of the gospel. And so is Paul complaining? Is he worrying about any of this? Verse 18, no. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether they lack sincerity or whether they're sharing Christ truthfully, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. I rejoice. All that matters to Paul is that the message of Christ is proclaimed. He is not embittered by these people who are trying to hurt him. All that matters is the advancement of the gospel, and that is happening, and so he rejoices. Paul lived a gospel-centered life. He cared about the gospel above his circumstances. The gospel going forward mattered more to him than his personal discomfort, his circumstances in jail, or people trying to hurt him. Now, when I say the gospel advancing, that sounds kind of clinical, right? What I mean by that is... Paul cared about the fact that there were people, men, women, and children, who were hearing the good news about Jesus Christ, that God in heaven had sent his son into this world to 
to save people out of their sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. They, they could step out of darkness into the kingdom of light and have a relationship with Christ. That's what I mean by the advancement of the gospel. People were meeting Jesus. Paul knew that. And so because of that, he rejoiced in spite of his circumstances, in spite of how people were treating him who wanted to hurt him. He rejoiced. You know, as we think about how God works, I think what we see here is a reminder that God does often use our difficult circumstances, difficult circumstances to see the gospel go forward. He uses difficult circumstances to advance the gospel. And the question for us then, though, is how will we respond? How will we respond when we are the ones that are facing those difficult circumstances? Will we choose the gospel above circumstances? So often my first response when I'm facing some kind of difficulty is not to wonder, I wonder what God might be up to here. I wonder how God might use this. My first response a lot of time is to feel badly for myself, to complain in my heart. I can get so wrapped up in my situation. That's a self-centered response, right? Not a gospel-centered response. And so this passage for me is a reminder to look to Paul's example and to look for how God may want to be working through difficult circumstances to advance the gospel. Now, I am not saying, and I do not think the scripture says, hey, if you're in a hard place, just put a happy face on it and act like you're not in a difficult circumstance. I am not saying that at all. I do not think the scripture teaches that. Some of you are going through very difficult things right now, and, it, and, and to, to live a gospel-centered life doesn't mean you just sort of pretend those things aren't happening. All of that matters, what you're in, the pain you're facing. I mean, God cares about that. He cares what you're going through. And so gospel of, above circumstances don't mean circumstances don't matter. But what I'm saying is, is that in the midst of whatever we might be going through, there's a way to be gospel-centered where we keep trusting God, we keep holding on to Him, we keep moving forward with faith. And there's something powerful when believers will do that as a testimony of the gospel. That's what I'm saying when you're in difficult circumstances. A few weeks ago, I had a friend of mine who was traveling down uh, Tuttle Creek Boulevard, and he was being a good, law-abiding citizen. He stopped at a red light like you're supposed to, but the person behind him did not. And she ran into him pretty hard, and uh, the bad news was she didn't have insurance. And his car was a little older car, and so... You know, he just had liability, which meant if he was going to get it fixed, it was going to be on his dime. And I don't know about you, but that's a situation that would make me want to complain, right? I mean, this is unfair. This is not right. That woman should have insurance. She should have to fix my car. I mean, that would be what I would, how I would want to respond. Do you know how my friend and his wife responded? They had compassion on this woman. They actually called her and invited her to come over for dinner. And she said yes. And they had to go get her and her little boy because her car was totaled. And they came, had her over, had a meal, and in the context of that meal, uh, they were able, my friend was able to share the gospel, kind of what motivated them to, to, to respond in the way they did. And, and uh, he described that she was, she was moved by uh, what was shared. And, and so as an ongoing, they've, uh, my friend's wife has helped her she had to do something to get her license, and, and then this woman has stayed connected to my friend's wife, calling with good news when there's good things to report. 
You know, who knows what God is going to do through this situation? We don't know what the end of the story will be. But I do know that the gospel has a better chance to advance in that situation because they chose gospel above circumstances. And they love this woman. Who knows what God will do? But that's a gospel-oriented life. How about us? How about us? Will we choose to live gospel-centered lives where we value the advancement of the gospel? Other people come in and know Jesus more than our difficult circumstances. That's what Paul models for us in these verses. So we continue in the passage. The next thing we see that is that a, that a person who's gospel-centered sees deepening of the gospel, the growth of the gospel in other people's lives is more important than one's personal desires. It's gospel before desires. Right in the middle of verse 18, there's a transition where you know, he says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. And a lot of our Bibles even like, there's a new paragraph right in the middle of the sentence. So he he's, has been talking about what is, what's been going on and now he's looking to the future. And so he says, I will rejoice. And he begins to talk and think about the future. And, and as he does this, we see how devoted he was to the gospel being extended and deepened in other people's lives beyond his personal desires. And so in, in uh, verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says that he has confidence of rejoicing in the future because he knows that he will be delivered. Now, what does he mean by delivered? What's deliverance? What was he talking about? I don't think he's actually talking about deliverance in the sense of uh, that he has a certainty he will be delivered from, from jail and that possible trial and possible execution because in verse 20, he understands he very well may die. He could mean deliverance in the ultimate sense of eternal salvation. In other words, regardless of what a Roman court decides about his fate, he believes that he will be vindicated before the God of heaven, the higher court, right? It could be that. And I believe Paul fully believes that. But I think what he's talking about is made clear in verse 20. Uh, Paul says he has this intense desire, this hope that he would not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as he always has, that he would be exalted in his body. Like what Paul fears is kind of taking a step back from boldly proclaiming Christ. That would be experiencing shame. And he, he fears that that's a possibility, that uh, he, he would kind of step back and, and not, not exalt Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. I believe when he says... Your prayers, I will, through your prayers, I will be delivered. It's, it's that he will continue to boldly proclaim Christ. He will be strengthened to do that. And it's interesting to notice how he says that's coming about, right? He says it's through the prayers of the Philippians that he's going to experience that. And I think the sense of what Paul's saying when he says, um, through your prayers 
and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I don't think he's saying, you pray, and then the Spirit is providing something for me. I think what he's saying is, through your prayers, what is provided is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Paul understood that the Spirit of God dwelled within him because he teaches that that's the experience of every believer. When we trust Christ, the Spirit comes and dwells among us. But I think what he's saying is through the prayers of the Philippians, the presence of Jesus was being manifested in such a real and tangible way to strengthen him, to motivate him, to give him courage, even in difficult situations. He says, it's through your prayers that God is showing up in my experience here, and and I'm experiencing the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. You know, it's just kind of an aside. Sometimes we wonder, like, what does prayer do, really? Like, like does prayer do anything? Does prayer really matter? Does it work? Uh, Paul would say, oh, I believe prayer makes a huge difference. And this would be one of the ways that they partnered with Paul in the, the spread of the gospel, right? As part of their partnership, they prayed for him. And he says it's because of their prayers that he would continue to be a bold witness. Prayer is a mysterious. We don't know how it works exactly, but I hope we see that Paul had no doubt that their prayers were important. And I think we ought to think about that. We ought to remember that as we think about our missionaries serving around the world, as we think about endeavors to extend the gospel here in our own community, right? Prayers matter. God does stuff through those things. Now, as Paul considers exalting Christ either by his life or by his death. He goes on to state how he thinks about life or death in verse 21. And he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as Paul thinks about the future, there's no bad options for him. No bad options. If he lives, his life will continue to be about Christ, knowing him and making him known. But if he dies, that will be gain as well. It will be gain in the sense that he would go to be immediately with Jesus, and that would be sweet. That would be gain. But I don't think that's the only thing he has in mind when he says that his death would be gain. I think he's also saying that, that if, because in the death in this situation, it would be a martyr's death. He would be put into death because of his faith. I think he's saying that, that if I die, that would be gain because in, in a martyr's death, that's a loud proclamation of the gospel, and that would be gain. Paul goes on to reflect on living and on, on dying for Christ in verse 22. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard pressed. It's kind of like I'm torn in two, trying to figure out what, what would be best. I'm hard pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Without a doubt, Paul's desire was to go to be with Jesus. That would be very much better. But he doesn't think first in terms of his desires. He thinks first about the interests of others. And he thinks about the Philippians, and as he thinks about their situation, he believes that to remain on on in the flesh would be better for them. And that would be fine, too, because that would mean fruitful labor for him as he continues to invest in their lives to see the gospel deepened in them. Now, I don't think Paul is actually saying 
he's going to be the one that decides about whether he lives or dies. I think it's more of like a rhetorical question. He's kind of processing his situation about what's going to happen. But the thing that we see as he does so, as he wrestles with this question, is how he values gospel over personal desires. Ultimately, Paul expresses his belief that he will continue to live because of the need that the Philippians have. And we see that to, to, he sees that to remain in the flesh is more necessary for their sake. But in verse 25, we see how he expresses the need that he sees. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And so the need that he saw was that, the, that, that their own development in the faith, he wants to continue to help them progress in the faith, that they could experience the joy of their faith. You know, when we think about Paul's situation, when we, we reflect on what he was experiencing, I mean, he had suffered a lot. If you read through uh, Acts and how he accounts, recounts some of his suffering, he had suffered a lot. He was currently suffering for Christ. We could understand his desire to depart and be with Christ. I mean, relief and freedom from all that suffering, that would be a very good thing. That was his desire beyond, you know, that, that's what he wanted. And yet, Paul, out of a gospel-centered life, chose the gospel over his desires. He chose to keep investing in others that they might continue to progress, be rooted and grounded in their faith, and that they could experience the joy of their faith. Do we want to be part of seeing the gospel go deeper in other people's lives more than we want our own desires to be met? Paul's desire was to go and be with Christ, but for Paul, there was this passion to see the gospel deepen in the lives of others. So much so that even later we'll see, he said, hey, even if I'm being poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, you know, I rejoice in that. He had this choice to extend the gospel beyond his desires. So what might this look like? You know, there's probably dozens of ways that choosing gospel before desires might look. But here, here's some, a couple thoughts that came to my mind this week as I reflected on this. So uh, we are taking a break. All the people that are teaching next gen are taking a break. And, and this, so this is a group of people that, I mean, week in and week out, they serve and they make great sacrifices to do that. Uh, you know, we may be in a situation, this may be some of us, you know, like what we really desire, what we love on Sunday morning is to come and have this experience and we love the interaction before and after services, coffee and talking to friends and then going home. That's what we personally desire. And yet, maybe we begin to go in light of the gospel and how important it is to see it extended in the lives of others. We say, I'm going to lay aside that desire and I'm going to choose to go serve every week to see the gospel extended and developed in the, the young people among us. That would be one application of gospel before desire. Or maybe, you know, like most of us, you're pretty busy, and it's great to have more free nights than busy nights. But as you think about the gospel before desires, you think, yeah, I think God wants me to, to host a group in my home or lead a group or be part of leading Rooted, facilitating Rooted gospel before a desire to have more free time. 
Or maybe you're about ready for bed one night and, and a friend calls you and they're in a tough place. They're, they're struggling and you get dressed and you go out and meet them and pray with them and you encourage them because you're choosing gospel above your desires. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that this can work out. And I don't know what it would look like for you, but uh, when we begin to think this way and respond this way, we're living a gospel-centered life, a gospel-centered life. Now, when we think about Paul's example here, this kind of life might sound hard. It might sound full of sacrifice. And the reality is, it probably is. It probably will be hard. It probably will be full of sacrifice. But, but we should not walk away from this passage and miss what Paul's saying about joy. And the book is about joy. I mean, Philippians is about joy. He rejoices over the gospel being extended. And as he thinks about the future, he says, I will rejoice. And so I think there's something about living a gospel-centered life that is connected to experiencing deep joy in our lives. See, if joy for me is about having all of my circumstances good, I'm probably not going to experience much joy in my life because when are circumstances ever like fully good? And so if my joy is dependent on circumstances, I'm going to miss a lot of joy. But if I would instead place the source of my joy in the gospel, what it's doing in my life, it being advanced in other people's lives, it being deepened in other people's lives, then I can experience joy regardless of what life brings. And that's what we see from Paul here, joy in spite of, joy of in, in, even when his desires were not fulfilled, gospel-centered life. Last year, I read a book called The Insanity of God, and as I um, studied this passage this week, I went back and re-listened to it uh, this week because it's, it's such an illustration of so much of what we see here. The title is of it, the insanity of God sounds kind of crazy. Uh, it's not actually saying God's insane. What it's saying is that sometimes the way he works in our experience here seems like it, but it's not. The book is by a guy named Nick Ripkin, which is not his real name. He changes his name because he's telling stories about believers in countries where it would be dangerous to kind of reveal anything about them. And so Anyway, a little backstory on Nick. Nick was called to go do uh, relief work in a number of different places, but, but six of the years he did relief work in Somaliland, part of Somalia, uh, during kind of, I mean, like the Black, Black Hawk Down kind of era. I mean, just like civil war and all this stuff going on. And uh, he was doing relief work, food and, and, and medicine and those kinds of things. During their time there, they had their, I believe it was their oldest son who died from an asthmatic reaction to the, because of their housing situation, so deep loss. And, and just, you know, going in and, and all this work, and it could just be destroyed in a minute uh, by corruption or, or things spreading through, war spreading through, and like, what's the point? I mean, there was just so much discouragement of what he was trying to do. And, and on top of all of that, there were fellow believers in Somalia who were martyred because of their faith, people he had had communion with. And so he really came to a crisis of faith, and he left the relief work. His family moved home. And there was kind of this journey of, you know, trying to, you know, figure out. He was so disoriented. Eventually, God led him to be a part of a group that were, you know, kind of exploring questions of like, how do believers in countries where there's persecution, how do they keep walking with Jesus? How do they keep their faith 
could we learn something about that that, that would be good for us? And, and to make a long story short, uh, there, he eventually ends, ends up in a situation where he's able to travel uh, all over and in, over in many years. In, here's the story of over 600 believers in over 60 countries to learn how they've walked with Jesus in the face of persecution. One of the guys he met was an 83-year-old Chinese pastor, Pastor Chang. He met him three days after this 83-year-old man had come out of prison, and he gathered with that man and six others. This, this Pastor Chang had spent his whole adult life teaching and preaching the gospel and had paid a very high price for it. He'd been in jail three times for his faith. First time when he became a believer, second time he was uh, leading others to faith in Jesus. He was leading a house church. And on this final time, it was for his role in leading a house church movement. And so Nick meets with him back in 1998, this man and, and six others. And these six other men, if I remember right, a couple of them were also just getting out of prison, but they all had been in prison. They had all suffered deeply for their faith. These other six were between 20 and 40 years old. They had all been led to Christ through Pastor Chang, and he had mentored them and discipled them. They were sort of like his Timothys. And so for several days in this little apartment, Nick heard these seven men's stories. First, Pastor Chang, but after Pastor Chang was done, he began to hear the story of these other six. And what was interesting, he described how Pastor Chang moved kind of to the corner of a room and just kneeled down and with his eyes closed, listened to the story of these men that he had mentored. And he said he, he would close his eyes and he would listen and he, he could hear this sense of he's humming songs of praise with his look of satisfaction on his face as he heard the story of these men's faith and their faithfulness. Nick writes this about Pastor Chang. He says, this old man, only days out of prison without a penny to his name, owned nothing but the clothes on his back and one extra pair of underwear. He had no home to return to and no surviving family to take him in. He describes how his plan is just to travel and encourage the saints, travel to churches, trust that God will provide in that way. And he goes on, he says, by any standard, Pastor Chang had lived a hard life. He had nothing tangible to show for all his labor. Even so, he seemed more content and more filled with the spirit of peace and more aware of the joy of living than anyone I had ever met. How's that possible? I think it's because he lived a gospel-oriented life. His life was centered around the gospel and what Jesus was doing in his life and what Jesus was doing in his friends' lives and how God was continuing in spite of circumstances to see the gospel go forward. And it, and it was going forward in a powerful way. What the Apostle Paul, what this 83-year-old Chinese pastor experienced can be ours if we choose to live a gospel-centered life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for models in the faith. We thank you for the model of Paul here. And uh, we thank you for the model of Pastor Chang and others like these men who yeah, have really lived lives centered around the gospel. And, and even though life is hard and difficult, there's joy in, in seeing the gospel go forward, joy in seeing others deepen in their faith. 
And Father, you have given us a calling to, to be a part of helping people come to faith in Christ and experience God in all of life. This is why we exist as a church. And so would you help us to, to live lives that are oriented around the gospel, in spite of what it costs, in spite of what it might mean in terms of circumstances. And God, help us to find joy in that as we live in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.